0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to a summer episode of Free Lunch. For this discussion, we have Carlos, Greg, and our first all-star guest, Brian Kaplan from George Mason <laughs> University. Brian, Carlos, and Greg are live from Austin at the Salem Center, and I'm Steve. I'm joining via Snowden-like bot from the leafy suburbs of Boston. Today, we're going to talk mostly about Brian's book on immigration, Open Borders, the Science and Ethics of Immigration. The book makes the argument that border restriction should be removed for both economic and moral reasons. Before we begin, I want to say that when I introduced myself virtually to Brian, I said I was a fan of the first 25 pages of his book. I am now a fan of your whole book. Oh, great. Also, <laughs> yeah. also before we begin, just our, dis- our standard disclaimer, Free Lunch is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world, brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this podcast represent the views of the hosts and not of the University of Texas at Austin. So that being said, Brian, can you briefly introduce yourself and let us know what you're working on these days?
1: Brian Kaplan. I'm a professor of economics at George Mason University. I'm a, a, I'm a research associate at the Mercatus Institute. I'm actually a visiting scholar here, and I'm also going to be a visiting scholar at Middle Tennessee State University. And uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, my book, open borders, uh, but you'll know, see so like what I'm working on now. Uh, so I've got a few different projects that I'm doing. Uh, so I'm doing another nonfiction graphic novel on housing regulation called "Bill Baby Bill: The Science and Ethics of Housing." I'm working on a much longer work on the social science of poverty called Poverty, Who to Blame? And then I'm actually working on eight new books of my best blog posts. So it turns out I can write eight books simultaneously really easily because they're already written.
0: <laughs> that's, that's impressive. <laughs> so in addition to Open Borders, you've written a book called The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. So we wanted to ask, has the pandemic provided any data to update your views on immigration or education?
1: Yeah, great question. Uh, when, I was writing the case against, uh, when I was writing the case against education, one thing I said is, look, even though schools are very bad at actually teaching useful material, at least they provide daycare. And then the system went and proved me wrong, and it stopped providing daycare. I couldn't believe it. So, look, the one demonstrably useful thing you do for taxpayers is take care of people's kids so they can do their jobs, and you're just going to stop doing that for a year in most places? So that really did shock me. In terms of what else we can learn from it, so one of the main things that I say in the case against education is that a lot of the reason why education pays is not that you're learning useful skills, but rather that you are jumping through hoops in order to impress employers. And the fact that the amount of actual material taught can go down so much as it did during the pandemic, it's very hard to deny this, Um, And also the fact that uh, most of the social connections disappear means that the story of people are getting good business connections at college can't explain it. So I mean, basically either the payoff for education is going to go way down for this year, which I think is unlikely, or it's going to be a confirmation of what I've been saying, which is that it really comes down to, did you jump through the standard social hoops? Did you do what's expected of you in our society? And if so, employers like you and otherwise they hold it against you. On immigration, I would say the main thing that I learned is that I really should have talked about infectious disease and open borders, which I totally didn't. I dropped the ball on that. Uh, but I don't consider it intellectually a very hard point. because you know, In the book, I already talk a lot about ways that you can get the benefits of immigration restriction without much of the cost. So of course, a lot of people look at the pandemic and say, if only we didn't allow people to come in from other countries, none of this would have happened. Obviously, you would have to do more than just stop immigration, you have to stop tourism too. But I think plenty of people would say, well, fine, then we lose the tourists, forget tourism. But then you realize, wait a second, we also have to stop people from our country from going to other countries and then returning. And at that point, you will say, gee, isn't there something we could do to not trap everyone in this country for their entire lives for fear of them bringing back an infectious disease? And then you begin thinking, "Ah, uh, yeah, I guess we could test people for the disease. We could quarantine. Right. And all of these things, when you think about it, they are likely to deter tourism quite a bit, but they would probably barely deter immigration. So, in fact, if anything, the pandemic shows that there are more problems with tourism than we realize. But immigration basically is no different from before, even though, yes, the pandemic was used as an excuse to get rid of virtually all immigration and not just in the U.S. Almost everywhere on Earth has ended it uh, probably temporarily, but we shall see. All right.
2: So let's jump and make a case for open borders. Then, so so summarize to us like the the main premise and
1: the, the the point you make in the book. Right. So I start with the question of why would you want to stop someone from coming to your country? right? Now, if you say, well, it's the same way you don't want to have a house guest hanging around for too long. It's like, no, it's not really the same because a house guest lives in your house with you. Whereas an immigrant lives in their own place when they show up. Maybe they live with a relative of one of them there, but immigrants do not move into private property without the permission of the owner. So that simple intuition of it's the same thing as not wanting a house guest does not make much sense. So then there's a the question of why would you stop someone from just coming here to go and get a better job, live in a place where they'd rather be given if they, they would normally just be paying their own way, then why would you want to interfere with that? And that's where I start by saying, it seems like there's a moral presumption against doing this to someone. If you didn't have a good reason to say no, then you should say yes. If you didn't have a good reason to stop a Haitian from moving here and getting a job, shining shoes and living in his own place, then you should say yes. I then say, well, but there are, of course, a lot of reasons why people would want to say no. And then I have a bunch of chapters on that. So the real solid core of the book, or like, like probably the most important premise there, is that the economic benefits of immigration, which have been, of course, widely discussed, are still grossly underestimated by almost everyone because the best argument is too subtle for most people to make. Right? And here is the best argument, economically speaking. It's very simple, but it's very solid and it's very big. And it just says this. When an immigrant moves from a poor country to a rich country, they get an enormous increase in their earnings. For example, when a Haitian moves to Florida, it would be very typical for them to start making 10 times as much money. right, now, why is that? It's probably not because Haitian employers are mean and American employers are nice. It's because the productivity of those workers is much higher in rich countries than in poor countries. This is obvious for something like agriculture. When you take a third world farmer and you move him from the third world farm to a first world farm, he just grows a lot more food because things are so much more functional here. We are much better at taking human talent and turning it into production. Now, when economists have estimated how much economic gain would there be if anyone could take a job anywhere, a ballpark estimate is something like doubling the production of the world, doubling what we call GWP, gross world product, a statistic that we rarely even discuss, but it's a totally meaningful thing, the production of humanity. So again, this is not the dumb argument of when you take population from another country, their GDP goes down and yours goes up. This is a smart argument of the combined GDP of the sending country plus the receiving country goes up, and it goes up by an astronomical amount per person because there, is, there are such large differences in productivity. All right, so this is the real heart of the economic case for immigration. And then when people start saying, well, what about the distribution? Here again, we have great historical evidence that any time there's a large increase in production, the benefits are widely shared. There is no such thing as a time when there's a large increase in social production and only a small number of people get the benefits. So the industrial revolution, this is not like rich people wearing a million t-shirts each. This is instead the change from the typical person who has only one shirt to having five shirts or something like computing. right? The information technology revolution is not primarily beneficial for people who are computer programmers. Rather, it is everyone who consumes the product. In that case, most people consuming most of it for free, which is really striking. Right? Um, or you know, something like Uber Or you know, increasing in agricultural productivity All of these things Yes, there are some people that are involved Who get some of the gain But the gains are very widely shared And I say there's no reason not to think That these large increases in production from immigration Would also not be widely shared uh, So then, once you're there so, Alright, so we're talking about A doubling of the production of the world So at this point, in a way I just want to do a mic drop And say, look, all your other complaints Could be completely true They're not going to be trillions of dollars a year true Um, Now, I know that's not totally emotionally satisfying, and there's a lot more to say, so I do spend subsequent chapters going over the other effects of immigration, going over the fiscal effects, the cultural effects, the political effects, but still, my fallback is always, look, these gains are so enormous, we could be overstating them by a factor of five, and we could be underestimating the costs by a factor of five, and still, it is a no-brainer. And is the only way that you could possibly get to an anti-immigration view would be by just counting the arguments instead of weighing them.
2: Right. So let me, let- this brings up. A- I
0: just, oh, sorry, just uh, this brings up a point. Oh, sorry, Carlos.
1: Go ahead.
2: No, I just that's just a, the, a quick, quick clarification. So it's easy to imagine the reason why the place mm-hmm. that's getting the, the, mm-hmm. the workers a high, high productive worker that moves into a high productive place will have will produce more and four, generate mm-hmm. more GDP for that country. How about the place that loses that worker? Yes, the, how is okay.
1: that that, that mm-hmm. place is benefiting in equilibrium in the end? Yeah, that is a great question. Uh, so, you know, at the meta level, you can say, well, which should we should be focusing on the geographical borders of a place or the people that inhabit it. So suppose that Haiti completely emptied, which is not that crazy of a prediction under open borders. And then you might say Haiti is now empty. Nothing happens in Haiti. So in a way, Haiti has been ruined. On the other hand, all the Haitians are gone, living a better life. So it's worth just keeping that in the background. Uh, But uh, that aside, if you just think about, well, what about the people that don't move? Maybe people can't move. Maybe the people that just don't want to. People are very attached. There, there are a bunch of other benefits of immigration that we can catalog. So one very large one is remittances. Where people migrate and they send money home. And there are a bunch of countries where this is a large share of their GDP, it's just money that is sent home by people that work in other places. There's also, of course, return migration for retirement. There's return entrepreneurship where someone goes to the first world, they learn a business, then they go home, and then they extend that business to their home country. Uh, now, all this is empirical. So, like, well, on the one hand, there's some gains, on the other hand, there's some losses. Maybe, like, like, you know, like, would there be, like, you know, any, or like, what are the odds that people that don't go would lose out? And this is where I do come back to the best example we have of this, which is Puerto Rico. So in 1902, the U.S. Supreme Court effectively established open borders with Puerto Rico. Since then, over half of all people of Puerto Rican descent have come to not live in Puerto Rico anymore. And yet Puerto Rico is actually basically the richest island in the entire Caribbean. And again, no mystery, remittances, return migration, retirement, people living in their retirement, people that uh, where there's reverse entrepreneurship where people go and learn and then they bring it back. So I would say that in terms of even the most extreme cases, it looks like it is actually not only good for the people that are in the country, but for the people that stay behind.
0: So if, if limitless immigration can create so much wealth, Why is the status quo both among the ruling classes and the masses so far from open borders? Or put another way, what are the obstacles that would allow us to break from the current low immigration equilibrium and move to a higher, you know, unlimited one?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So my first book, The Myth of the the Rational Voter, Why Democracies Choose Policies, is all about how there are lots of great policies that are unpopular. So it's easier for me to cope with the idea that this idea is unpopular, even though it's good, because that's actually my presumption is that good ideas will be unpopular. <laughs> right Now, why would this be? Well, here is the basic story that I told my kids later about six and they started thinking about this. They Look, there are a lot of ideas that are good, but sound bad. And there's a lot of ideas that sound good, that, that sound bad, but are good. And will uh, and, and open borders really is one of them. So you know, the idea of open borders it just raises all sorts of fears of people. It's like an invasion, and we'll be drowned out, and and, and people just will let their minds run wild with, with with the downside. Even if you were to say, well, what's happened with immigration so far? Well, yeah, that seems like it's and all this really bad stuff has happened or what about all the immigration in the open borders period in the united states before 1924 yeah that was good so why are you so confident that it would be bad if you're not seeing this bad stuff and if also when it was tried before it seemed to be fine so as to why it is that people are so ups- uh, upset about this i mean i do think that there is a human universal of xenophobia i don't know if any country or people think that their country is bad and other countries are better than they are Right, so it is I, don't know, just a, I do uh, I I'm, I'm
2: an immigrant <laughs> from Brazil, and uh, I chose to be here but for, do, but exactly
1: we, that reason. We, but do
2: Brazil? But does the average Brazilian, no. if you went okay, to Brazil, average yeah, Brazil yeah, if you tried, tried running running for office in Brazil, and
1: said, "Look, here's the problem," like we we Brazilians need to accept that our country is a failure, our culture is screwed up, and we must humble ourselves and learn from the more successful countries. Would that make you friends? Probably not. Yeah, would right. that would that get you shot? Actually. <laughs> the, the only place it would make
3: you friends is in America with highly educated people. Yes, that's true. Yes, Right. Yeah, that's, true, yeah. that's where you'll uh where you'll
1: get it. Yes, perhaps perhaps. Although if you <laughs> point to which which country do you have in mind as being the better one? Then, then they'll all disagree. Yes, well, Sweden, maybe. Although, maybe they'll not these Sweden. days. Not these yeah, days. Yes, Sweden yeah.
2: killed yeah. a lot of people with COVID. So
1: that's right, so. Oh, yeah. so maybe oh, yeah. we, Nor- we need Nor- to go no, to Norway. Go Norway, perhaps. Norway, Denmark. <laughs> I, now, you know, of course, you know, the, you know, that's that's far from the far from the full story. Of course, there's the tongue-in-cheek one of not everybody's read my book yet. Um, <laughs> um, so I, I, I will say, out of all the things I've written, it's definitely the most persuasive. Right, It actually changes the mind of people who are initially skeptical, not every time, but sometimes, and that's a high hurdle for a book. Right, A book that changes the minds of some of the people who are initially skeptical, that's almost unheard of, actually, for a book to do that. Most books just preach the choir, uh, so there is that. Um, you know, you know like, like, and I, I do think there is to say, you know, a general pessimism in human nature, where when you give them a new idea, people think about the worst that could happen rather than what is likely to happen. Uh, so there's that, and then I'd say a basic enumeracy. Remember, when I, I was saying that, like the the arguments against immigration, the only way you could possibly make them work is if you count the arguments instead of weighing them. Right? And the normal human approach is to count arguments, not weigh them. So if you say, look, yeah, there's one argument that it would make us $10 trillion richer per year, richer per year but then what about there was a terrorist attack in a bus station? That's one argument. And, what, and then you just, if you break it up that way, you just well, you can get hundreds of, uh, of complaints. I mean, you know, all the way down to, and I actually have, have, even in debates, have people say, look, in my small village in Austria, there were two guys, and I'm like, seriously, you're gonna be talking for an audience of 500 people talking about two guys in Austria? And then the punchline of the story was, he didn't like these guys very much. And <laughs> it's like, they were like they don't even seem like very bad guys, actually. Like, they're like a little odd, but like, that's, even, that's an argument. But yet, I have no doubt some people in the audience said, oh, there's well, you remember the two guys in Austria are our, our objection. That's important. Brian never answered that. Can we talk a little bit about why do we
0: value increased GDP more than something like you know I don't know a, a national identity?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So this is one where I have a slogan, which to my mind cuts through so many different complaints and issues that people have, and it's actions speak louder than words actions speak louder than words so when someone says i value national identity more than gdp this is where my reaction is honestly hmm all right so how much time do you spend promoting national identity or preserving national identity in a given week right and it's like yeah like none all right so like do you ever attend patriotic meetings do you read patriotic books like and then tell me the amount of time how much do you how much money do you spend on this and almost invariably, the answer is, well, yeah, by that measure, basically nothing. And that's why I say, so it's not me claiming that this stuff is not very important to you. It's you claiming with your own actions this stuff is not that important to you. Uh, so, and again, I know people don't like this argument, but it's when you when you really calm down and think about action speaking louder than words, You, know, like, you know, just to go and, you know, and be very blunt about it. When someone says, my religion is the most important thing in my life, but I don't go to church, it's like... Well, then it's not the most important thing in your life. If it was, you would go to church. Like, or, like, or maybe you'd be knocking on doors or like try to make or proselytize, something like that. But I mean, like just the, the, the way that people talk about national identities being so important and you see how little they do, and again, they're like, well, what can you do? Well, for example, if you really thought that immigrants are messing up the culture of your area, there are many parts of America with almost no immigrants. You can move there. It's perfectly legal to move there. Hardly anybody does. Right. When I was debating Mark and head of the Center for Immigration Studies, probably the world's most important anti-immigration think tank, and I was saying, well, Mark, you live in D.C., one of the highest immigration areas of the world. You don't have to live here. According to you, this is terrible. Why are you here? And I was kind of waiting for him to say it is terrible, but I'm taking one for the team so that they don't have to suffer as I suffer every day in this immigrant hellhole. And he didn't. He got all fuzzy, like, well, there's like some good things about it, some bad things. It's like, well, that's your view, then like, why are you even running this? organization why does the organization exist if it's so if you're going to be so wishy-washy about it so that really is, is where I come down is that I just don't think that more than a handful of people actually really do care about national identity very much which is demonstrated by their actions that they don't actually make much effort they don't invest very little time or money in doing it and therefore i say they don't really care and when these words it's just cheap talk as people are inclined to do very often <laughs> it is human nature greg
3: no. Up uh, Steve, 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 Steve. Oh, oh, sorry, 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 Greg, hold Greg, on. Yeah, yeah. d- Let we'll, like Greg like jump Greg, in here. Like Greg we didn't really figure out what our protocol was for this yeah. with <laughs> one virtual and uh, <laughs> I know. people. We don't know who's driving the show. Um, can we talk a little bit about what you mean by open borders? Because yes. there are different views you mm-hmm. might have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll just give you two that two friends of mine have. Um, I have a friend who thinks crossing the border, actually this is Harry Binswanger. he mm-hmm. mentioned in conversation mm-hmm. earlier, we were talking about this and his view is crossing a border should be like crossing a street. Mm-hmm. Uh, the government should need probable cause to even look at your papers when you're crossing a border. Mm-hmm. Um, another view is that borders matter. Um, the government has different mm-hmm. responsibilities, has reason to check whether people come in or not. There might be situations say a pandemic or something where you mm-hmm. might have to have heightened scrutiny, but the um, policy of a government should be we let people in whenever possible, though we, you know, look at passports and so forth. So there's mm-hmm. control at the border, but the control is for the purpose of enabling immigration, enabling tourism, mm-hmm. while stemming criminality or infectious disease. Which of these positions um, do you have in mind under the
1: heading of open border, or are you agnostic? Mm-hmm. Between? Right, yeah. So Great question. If someone to say, well, just what does open borders mean? I would just say, in one sentence, it means that you know, any, any non-criminal on earth is free to live and work in any country they want. So any non-criminal on earth is free to live and work in any country they want. Criminal here defined in the normal way of someone who actually is a murderer, robber, robber, rapist, that kind of thing, not their governments put them in jail for saying the wrong thing or whatever. because uh, of course that is one reason why people want to leave is because their government has ridiculously branded them a criminal just for the crime of disagreeing with the government. Um, so you know I would just define it in that minimal way. So it's very it's consistent with your second th- with, your, with your second standard. I would say it is an interesting question as to whether it is actually a good idea to go and just make it like crossing a street and I would say that having been around Europe during the pre-pandemic period that street crossing model is really good like it's really nice to be able to just drive across borders going 160 kilometers an hour which I guess maybe I haven't gone quite that fast but <laughs> uh, yeah maybe once <laughs> uh, so I mean I mean so that's one where I would say you know two things one is if you need to have these moderate restrictions in order to, to reassure people then I i say that's a very small price to pay to get the enormous gains. And then, secondly, there may be some extreme circumstances where it's not just reassurance, where it actually is doing considerable good. Um, I would say that if we started off with a street crossing model and someone said, "Let's go and add some restrictions," that's where I would say, "No way," because this is the first step on a slippery slope. If it was t- right now, and then we roll it all the way back, that's where I would be more, much more inclined to say, "All right, well, maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's justified, maybe not. We can, like, it would make sense to at least see it." And in any case, we don't want to alienate people for well, just over this very very minor issue of whether it's hundred percent or 99.9%. So you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the binge buying review in the end, but I don't, you know, it, it, this is not one where I have great confidence on and It's one where I can really see someone disagreeing. Um, on the other, you know, on the other hand, I would be inclined to say, let's get in, get in the car and drive uh, 160 kilometers an hour between Austria and Germany and see if you, uh, and, and come to appreciate, look, there's all of this going on. And yes, there's a few Austrian criminals that are slipping through into Germany, but, um, you know, that doesn't seem that bad, all, all things considered.
3: So, the raising of Germany, Carlos, um, <laughs> I know you have no, been, no, That was a good one. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, uh, so Germany is an interesting model here because we did have a case of uh, a huge, um, you call it a migration surge or a refugee surge mm-hmm. into Germany in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, let's put it, it's been very controversial. Yes. So, um, it might be useful to talk about. Mm-hmm. That case, the kind mm-hmm. of complaints there have been against Merkel's policies, yeah. what's going on in Germany, what we expect mm-hmm. for the future of Germany.
1: Yeah, so of course, the really big migration crisis in Germany happened under the uh, under divided Germany, when there was something like ten percent of the population of East Germany fled to West Germany during the period when they could. This, as a percentage of the population, this is much larger than anything that happened under under Merkel. Right? And most of the complaints that you would have against them, you could ma- you could have made or that you would have against the latest wave, you could have had against the first wave as well, right? You know, all the way down to they're fleeing from a communist country. Perhaps they've been infected by communist ideology and are going to come and undermine our system here. Um, but you know, so that said, you know, the the actual number that came in, it got enormous amount of media attention. But when you realize they're being spread over the entire EU, then it was actually a very you know, a, a very small amount relative to the population of the EU. Uh, So I would say that there is a reasonable complaint about the migration, which is just that in the European welfare state, there are a lot of benefits that are available for them, and I can understand why people would be resentful of paying all these benefits. We could also say, look, it is the laws of your own country that says they get these benefits. There wouldn't be any problem for you to specify limits on them or durations or anything else, or just say that foreigners are not eligible for these benefits. But in terms of the actual effects, I say that there's a big contrast between the unsung great benefits of allowing refugees to move into the EU in general and Germany in particular and then the heavily publicized complaints so the heavily, heavily publicized complaints are ones that we don't need to talk about very much because they're so familiar. So these are ones where people will say, look, we found like, like a, a couple of them turned out, turned out to be terrorists, and that's really bad. And also, uh, unsurprisingly, when there's a welfare state, they don't immediately find jobs, although you know, over, over the course of a few years, it's a much higher percentage wind up getting work. Right, and then just the complaints about like you know not sharing our culture, and like how do we know what's going to go on here? Or like there's also the famous incidents in some train stations on I believe like New Year's Eve in Germany. So again, and I say, and I say if you go and just add all this up, it turns out to be a very tiny percentage of all the crime happening in the U during this entire period. But it gets a lot more attention because it again it, it is emotionally very affecting. Right, it is it's not just crime; it is foreigners committing crime in a very dramatic way. Uh, so this does emotionally ring a bell, but you know, my view is the whole point of social science and philosophy is to get people to stop reacting to things emotionally and put them in context and say, all right, look, all right, so there's this certain amount of crime. What percentage of all the murder in the European Union was that? All right, right and see what that was and say, all right, well, it's a, like, it, it is a cost. It is a small problem, but then again, like, what would be a reasonable reaction to a problem of that size? Right. A reasonable reaction to the fact that males commit 90% of all violent crime is not to preemptively go and, ar- and arrest all males. It's not even to go and put tracking software in every male just so we know what, where every male is. It's like, well, there's a little bit of crime done by males. It's, yes, greatly overrepresented among this gender. We'll keep an exit. We, we, we will scrutinize males a little bit more, but other than that, we're not going to do it. In terms of the good stuff that happened, people almost never talk about this. Yes. How about the people that would have been murdered that didn't get murdered because they got out? It's probably a lot of people, right? Or how about all the women that would have been very heavily oppressed in their home countries who were able to get to the EU and then not be very heavily oppressed? I do have this old blog post called, Where Would You Prefer That Saudi Women Be Oppressed? Right? And the theme of it is, (laughs) uh, so if you're a Saudi woman, you'd rather be oppressed in Saudi Arabia or in the Netherlands, right? In both cases, you can say, well, even if you're in the Netherlands, your family may go and get on your case and so on, or maybe they'll even be violent, but still, which country would you rather to, uh, rather just say, I'm not going to go and follow my family's rules? Right? Obviously, it is way better to be a Saudi woman in the Netherlands than in Saudi Arabia. You could just leave your family and not talk to them anymore if they're violent against you. You could even turn them in, and the government would probably be somewhat sympathetic, whereas in Saudi Arabia, they would call them up and say, there's an hysterical woman here, your daughter, you should come get her and explain to her how things really are. So, you know, you've got that and obviously all the economic opportunity. So I do know that the labor force participation for Muslim immigrants and especially refugees is quite a bit below that of the European level. Part of it is actually people really do need some time to, to adjust to moving to a new country where they're unfamiliar with the economy and the language. Although again, I say most of that actually simply comes down to the European welfare state because if you show up not speaking the language of the country we're in and you have no money, you will find a job. Right and again, especially of course, there's already quite a few other people from your country that are there, uh, and this is you know, the historical way that things worked in the United States and other high immigrant countries is you know, when someone showed up, desperate, very little money, you go you go to Little Italy or you go to Little Budapest and you find people who speak your language and you you, know, you start at the bottom, but you know starting at the bottom in Little Italy is way better than where you where, where you likely were back in Sicily, and obviously it's way better than being in a Turkish refugee camp, no doubt about that.
3: So what about the idea, um, you talk about would you rather be a Saudi woman oppressed in Saudi Arabia Mm -hmm. or in the Netherlands, what about the worry that the influx of immigrants from oppressive countries into the Netherlands, into Germany, into the United States, um, will change the culture, change the political values in those cultures, in those countries? And make them lose the kind of freedom they have. Now, this is something Mm -hmm. you discuss Mm -hmm. in your book about voting patterns. And it's a good topic to.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, my first reaction is just that's a really, if there's a change, it's going to be very, very, very small. All right. So, the idea that if we let in 10 million Muslim refugees in the United States, this would go and somehow change the laws about whether women can work in the United States or anything like that seems, no, no, not, not, not just far fetched, it is fanciful. All right, so again, if it were changing the U.S. to ninety percent Muslim, then that's plausible. But that's not the way the real, real world migration actually works. Now, the real fear, I would say, is just that you'll let in a bunch of migrants and then their kids will not assimilate to the culture of the receiving country. So there, for the United States, we've got good data and there's also reasonable data for the UK. And this is where I would say that there's, again, a big disconnect between what you see in the media and what, you, and what we actually see in the data. And the media, they'll go and show you, you, know, the, you know, also, I suppose this is a British case, you, you know, this, young, this young man was raised in a family of secular Muslims but he became a violent terrorist fighting for ISIS. Right now, why is that kid on TV? because he is the exception that proves the rule. Vast majority of kids that are raised in Muslim households in the UK don't go and volunteer for ISIS or anything close to that. Now, if you're wondering, well, so how much assimilation is there? The way that people usually want to do it is they go and find any difference between second-generation immigrants and the native-born population, and normally then it's easy to see. And I say that is not a good measure of assimilation. Good measure of assimilation is what people of the same age back in the home country are like. Versus what the second, second second generation migrants that are in the receiving country are like, and there I'd say there's just no doubt that there is enormous assimilation. So, like you know, the degree to which Muslim immigrants in the UK are okay with gays compared to how they feel in Saudi Arabia. Again, it's like, you could say that they, you know, they, are, they are less pro-gay in the UK than the average person in the UK, quite plausible. But to say that they are not vastly more pro-gay or less anti-gay than people in Saudi Arabia, I'd say that's pretty crazy. And again, here we're just talking about one generation of assimilation. So in the book, I go over different measures of assimilation uh, like one that social scientists talk a lot about is trust. There's this idea that you need to have people feel like they trust other people to have a functioning society. And it is a fact that people in poor countries tend to have low trust. Uh, probably the best explanation is that there's low trustworthiness in the societies where they are, which makes them not feel very trusting. Uh, But in any case, you can see very high assimilation and trust of second-generation immigrants where their parents do tend to retain this idea of you can't really trust people outside of the family, but their kids, on the other hand, have very high assimilation to the receiving country. And again, I mean, what I would say, this is one where I would just appeal to common experience to just say, think about second-generation immigrants that you know who actually grew up in this country on a a spectrum from 100 where they see the world just as their parents do and zero where they see it just as you do. Where are they? Maybe they're like 10, 15. It's very hard to find any second-generation immigrant who grows up in the U.S. who is closer to his parents in political and cultural outlook than to his friends. So I would just say assimilation is very high, which means then that you can get over over a longer period of time, you can let in a massive number of immigrants because each generation is getting assimilated as they go. Uh, By the way, when I was writing the book, my editor was saying, we should cut out the stuff on assimilation because it might offend some people who don't like assimilation. And I'm saying, well, this is true, so let's keep it in the book. <laughs> <laughs> right? So I'm just going to go and say what's true and then say it's good. And if someone thinks it's, uh, says that it's bad, it's like, all right, well, I guess if you think this is bad, then maybe you shouldn't be pro-immigrant because by, from your point of view, then it's a bad thing. Although yeah maybe you should rethink that view but anyway it's true people assimilate it's it's a very high level it's not perfect but it's a lot i mean just look at carlos carlos uh, carlos <laughs> where, where would you put yourself on the scale so like like uh, you know, in terms uh, of how, you young, how americanized auto your son is going to grow up to be versus you know, like so a hundred is like uh, say you're know, like the average person back in brazil and zero is your son where where do you feel like you are uh, what I am yeah, okay. So yeah, zero, yeah, my son, yeah, you, are,
2: you already yeah. assumed that he has zero Brazilianness in him. Yeah, yeah we like, we, yeah,
1: he yeah, like that, 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 That's true. I am sort of, beg, sort of begging the question. Yeah, because he would be a second generation immigrant. That's but. right. That's right. Yeah. 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 So if I, 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 I simulated a lot. Yeah. Where, question, where but, will yeah. Otto be? Where like so? That's actually is the thought experiment I'm proposing. Where, where will Otto be on that scale from 100? He grows up to be just like an average Brazilian, and zero he grows just up to be a the average kid of native born American parents. He's gonna be an average kid in Native born American so be, But you're starting, starting
2: from a culture yeah. that is incredibly... Yeah. Uh, there has a lot of affinities with the American uh-huh. culture, right? So, so, yeah. so you know, we have different languages, mm-hmm. different food, whatever. But we grew up watching the same movies as uh-huh. you. We grew up reading the same yeah, books yeah. as you, and therefore, there's a mm-hmm. it's very different than yes. you know comparing like a, yes. a, a yeah. some 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 places that the culture is heavily influenced mm-hmm. by religious you know habits mm-hmm. and things like that. And
3: then we yeah. have a particularly American Brazilian and an American, yes, line. yes, yes, right, yes, right, yes right. That's, yeah, 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 that's true, that's true, 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 so, true, true, true. And
2: and yeah. you know, maybe my rejection of certain aspects of my culture is part of what you know, not 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 a judgment on the culture, just a practical matter of like like, you know, mm-hmm. generated betterment for me, right? Yeah. Um, I, I have a question uh, about, about you know, we, we tend to have this conversation about open borders, typically thinking from an American perspective, in the sense of we're is a country that people demand to come to, and I think if mm-hmm. we're to open borders tomorrow, we have, I don't know, millions of people would move here yeah. almost immediately, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't tend to think about well, all the other countries in the world that don't receive, I guess, that mm-hmm. many immigrants. Well, there's a lot of places mm-hmm. that do receive immigrants, but not, not, not. So, and the barriers to migrate are there pretty much everywhere, including the countries that tend to lose people. Mm-hmm. So is there, is there, not a concern, but what's your understanding of, of uh, in a world where, let's say, rich countries start opening borders mm-hmm. and, and that will lead to migration, so are there, uh, well, we, we saw that during the Cold War, uh, places stopping people from leaving the country, right? Mm-hmm. Like, no, no, you cannot leave. Mm-hmm. East Germany. <laughs> you have mm-hmm. to stay. Um, I don't know. Do you see the transition? Well, how would you see the transition mm-hmm. happening? Or what kind of... Uh, 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 Sort of, a, and at the same time, how do we think about poor countries that actually have huge? Brazil is an example of it. It's in, incredibly hard for you to go work in Brazil, mm-hmm. for you to move there. Um, why? Brazil just benefit <laughs> by having Brian move to Brazil, and yet it's not something that's doable.
1: Yeah, remember I was talking about how xenophobia exists in all known human populations. So There's all known human <laughs> populations. Okay, so <laughs> yeah, that's so, as simple as that. So you, I mean, I mean of course you would know the Brazilian reaction better if you say like like why not let Americans go work here? Hardly any of them would, but the few that would would probably add a lot of value. Mm-hmm. And then I think They'll the typical, steal jobs. Yeah, typical Brazilian will just start thinking about what could go wrong. Yeah, they could steal jobs. Like yeah, well they might also go and improve productivity by sharing um, more more advanced cutting-edge production uh, techn- uh, technology to management, to production. They They might actually start businesses, right? But again, I think the natural human proclivity, as soon as you mention foreigners, start thinking of things that could go very wrong. Uh, So yeah, now in terms of whether countries would start preventing people from leaving if if some countries didn't have open borders, uh, last week I was actually talking to several people. Would mainland China reimpose emigration restrictions if we had open borders for any Chinese STEM worker. Yes, And I think it's plausible they would. It would be a very bad hit to their public relations to basically say well, yeah, 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 China's a slave pen again. Just like, but... Uh but that's an extreme description. If, yeah, if that,
2: but Barry Freeman from Leave is not a slave camp. We talked about that earlier today. Uh, part, I, really. I, I, said, I said it again. <laughs>
1: again, a, a country where you are not allowed to leave the country. Yes, it's it's uh, it's it's pretty bad. Yeah,
3: they could also put up. Um, Things that make it less attractive to—I mean, we do that. Yeah. Uh, America, you know, yeah. if you try to renounce your yes. citizenship—not that I'm planning to—but yes. there are all kinds of tax penalties. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, 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 that yeah, yeah. You have and, to
1: lose, lose lose all your right. non-human capital right. anyway. Right. So, I think only a small number of countries would actually be totalitarian enough to go and and actually impose strict immigration restrictions that would really make much of a difference. I—I I think actually that would be at the point where I think some countries would in fact feel like they had to actually reform a bit. It's so like like either we. We go and like and, and we start shooting people trying to leave. Yeah, that's what I'll say, like, if you really are shooting people trying to leave, even if it's things are not that desperate inside, if you shoot people trying to leave, that does sound like a prison. Uh, so awesome. I mean, yeah, and yeah, we had a
2: lot of people in this country yeah. defending that system yeah, for yeah. a long time in yeah. the 50s and 60s it, and 70s in countries yeah. that actually
1: had to shoot people not to leave it. Yeah. <laughs> so defending people for, uh, for coming in, not for leaving. No, no,
2: no, no, no. Defending their system. We, uh, had, we had, like,
3: you know, yeah, Soviet uh, apologists
1: uh, the All had Soviet oh, apologists oh, yeah, 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 in the yeah, US and yes, our yes. universities, right? Very, very, <laughs> very few, like, 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 high status people in our society. I mean, like, the best thing John F. Kennedy ever said was, We never had to build a wall to keep our people in. So I think that's actually a quote. And it's like, what do you say to that? It's like, yeah, well, you've got unemployment, man. <laughs> <Right>?
0: <laughs> so where do you think the overton window is on immigration now? Like what reform, what reforms do you think are actually hmm. politically possible?
1: Yeah, that's another great question. So uh, Open Borders was just on PBS last week, so we're in the Overton window. we got an eight-minute segment on PBS. People are talking about this as something that isn't so crazy that you change that like well, I'm not even you know, going. I'm not going to cover this it's not even worth it in terms of what's actually likely to happen in the next 10 years so like obviously the DREAM Act is the one that I think is most likely to happen and again it's one where it's only not happening really for strategic reasons because I think that most Republicans want it as well but there's some sense among Republicans we don't want to just give the, give the Democrats this for free we want to make them give us something back and the Democrats like no 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 we think we hold out we can get you to give it to us for free so so, But anyway, so the Dream Act is one that hits all the right buttons of human emotions. And again, like I'm the first to admit that like if the you know, Maidies win, it probably won't be the arguments that won them. It'll be that it, the, the emotions wound up going the right way, and that's actually what really happened. You know, just like with letting in a lot of refugees from the Syrian civil war into Europe. It wasn't arguments that did it. It was a photograph of a dead child on a beach. That, I think, was the reason why they, they, they bent the rules and let a lot in. So, in terms of like other things that are reasonably likely to happen, like, you know, th- see things like raising the number of H-1B visas, uh, things like more agricultural visas, you know, things that are basically very technical and boring to most people, and there's an industry that really wants them. So those are things like hospitality visas. What normal person can ever get get worked up over hospitality visas? What is a hospitality visa? I mean, I actually was at a big anti-immigration conference brought in as the devil's advocate. And later that afternoon, there was the Boycott Disney group where they wanted to boycott Disney for going and hiring foreign workers to work at Disneyland. You know how you see the Disney workers have the little badges saying what country they're from? Well, why is that? It's because of hospitality visas. But anyway, I've already probably bored people who are listening with the, with the details of this. But that, you know, that I can see happening. And then you know, so like like easier family reunification. That's something that's, uh, that that seems plausible as uh, as, as also being doable. Um, and then, Those you know, all seem very
2: minor yeah, in terms yeah. of the
1: amount of people coming in. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so that's true. Uh, you know, let's going back up to the refugee quota, so like, we've been way under ref- the refugee quota for a long time, so that's something that's pretty easy to do. In terms of like, any major legisl- legislative change, again, I think that's very unlikely for the next 10 years. I mean, I'd put that under 10% in a good direction overall and maybe like 20% in a bad direction. Uh, but... Uh, I mean, in terms of you know, things in a good direction, I think you know, like, you know, things, things relating to just more work visas and just expanding work visas so you're not really trapped with any one employer. Uh, so, those seem like realistic things. And then, sort of at the outer edge, would be like a free migration agreement with Canada, which I think people would have actually almost nothing to say about it in terms of argument other than, well, then what's next? Mexico? Aha, I caught you. This is the part of your plot to go and get open borders in Mexico, which we definitely don't want. Um, by the way, Carlos, you're reminding me that when people say we don't want non-Western immigration, and I'm like, well, what is Latin America? They speak uh, Western languages, you know. they practice Western religions, religion. so they're not Western? Like, and they're ooh. in the West. Yeah, oh, yeah. The West. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> the West is actually supposed to be Europe, I thought, but... but the uh, the, North. Yeah, 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 the, the global North, but... Now, yeah. But yeah, yeah. But anyway, uh, that, that is one where it's like, hmm, uh, I don't know what's going on there, but I don't like it.
2: <laughs> yeah, know, a, a version of that is... so. Would, there, there's there's some discussion on the on the on the right at least about skill based immigration mm-hmm. right so well mm-hmm. if, we, if we make some sort of barrier yeah, yeah. in terms of skills and and mm-hmm. which would be i think very easily yeah. to justify with your, your open borders yeah, with yeah, canada for example yeah. or with europe I and mean, yeah, even yeah. that yeah. it yes, seems, yes. seems to be like a, yeah. why the u.s doesn't have an open trade and immigration agreement mm-hmm. with europe seems to be a, a terrible wasted opportunity right yeah and, and one that's much easier to sell i think to people mm-hmm. than than the notion yeah. of you know different cultures or whatever right Although I don't know, people have yeah. objections to polax or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't they're, think they're,
1: so. Possibly slippery slope, partly I mean so like not speaking English bothers people, obviously. So, like, people want fluent English speakers and ideally native-born English speakers. There's a lot of Americans who just don't like hearing an accent. It's not something they advertise, but it's pretty clear. Uh, but, yeah, but, like, not, no one with Canada. So, again, that's something where it seems within the Overton window, and yet eh, it's a little hard to say that there it, it really is. It's like there's no reason not to do it, but it's weird. And if there's no reason not to do it, but it's weird, is it in the Overton window or not? I don't know.
2: I you know, and I go back to the question at the beginning about the pandemic that has actually created a more skepticism I think towards that. I think we are still we actually still have a closed border, literally a closed border with Canada yeah. right
1: now, oh, and oh, I think no, the, be, that they'll, they'll the be Canadian using the justification. Fault. Hey, Canada, if you're listening, no, I know. <laughs> shape up, Canada. Shame on you. Yeah, but they you're, don't you're, want you're, you're being crazy, Canada. but they don't want you yeah, yeah. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, but if Canada, I think like, this is one where I think if Canada were were to go and just say we're like we're totally ready, we're done, like. I, th- uh, I, my, I, I think it's actually more likely than not the U.S. W- would agree within a month to do, to do, to do it too. Right. Oh, okay. the,
2: the, the, yeah. the travel ban. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So I think that, you know, America's so much more open than Canada and the Canadians are just being crazy. Let me ask a question that, that
3: imagines, I think, a very different world than we're in, but it's a world that I think a lot of people think we're in, mm-hmm. something more like it. So suppose you're a small outpost of Mm -hmm. civilization and positive good values, Mm -hmm. however you define those things, Sure, sure. Um, I have my way. But in a world that all the countries around you are very Mm -hmm. hostile to that. I think this will be maybe the most controversial thing we say here. I think a decent case could be made that that's the case with Israel and its Mm -hmm. immediate neighbors. Mm -hmm. But whether you think that or the reverse about Mm -hmm. Israel, imagine a country like this, a small country surrounded by a sea of hostile countries Mm -hmm. to it. It has, they're not at war with it, but they're very mm-hmm. different kind of views. In this country, there are values that support uh, democracy, freedom, uh, b- good treatment of religious minorities, et cetera, but it's a tiny island in the world mm-hmm. surrounded by every place else that mm-hmm. is very different. Uh, would, what should the immigration policy of such a country look like? Is mm-hmm. open borders even the right policy there? And if it's not, what's different about our world mm-hmm. than that, that?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. So what I do in open borders is I never say, look... First principle says immigration should always be free. There's an argument that says it shouldn't be, so the argument's wrong, or I I don't care about it. Instead, I always try to just calmly go through the numbers on the objections. So I say, look, I'm not an absolutist. If you had to go and steal a dime to save the earth, steal that dime. Definitely steal the dime. If you have to go and restrict the immigration of one person, prevent civil war, even this totally innocent person. Well, I see, that's a bad moral quandary to be in. But yes, uh, go and restrict the freedom of that one person. So it really does come down to the empiric. So, like, how bad is it reasonable to think that things would be? So, like, mostly I just look at the uh, the situation of the United States, and I say, like, we just look at not just the opinions of the people that migrate here, but a reasonable prediction of the the people that would migrate over borders. Their views, though, moderately worse, it's only a moderate difference. They have low voter turnout, and they would not be a large percentage of the population for a very long time, and by that point they'd be assimilated. So I say for the U.S., that's why there's nothing to worry about, or, like, almost nothing to worry about. Israel, I will say, as you always say, much Carter case although even there i want to be very specific and say look like so it's like it is plausible that israel has a reason to be nervous about letting letting in muslim immigration this is not a good reason for israel to prevent immigration from anywhere else on earth that is has not hustled israel uh when people say yeah but then it wouldn't be a jewish state anymore so yeah that's not a good enough reason to not let people in to say that it's good that it's going to go and change our culture from one where almost everyone has this religion to some other religions that are also compatible with with freedom and human rights uh Right, and also, also worth the pointing out like, If Israel did do that, their population would probably grow so much that they could that it probably wouldn't be that dangerous for them to let it let in Muslim immigrants. I could also say that you know, the, this argument is not a good one for preventing the uh, for running you know, Muslim guest workers, which actually used to be very standard in Israel until uh, you know, in previous decades. So you know the way that I put it, I, I have a chapter called Keel Solutions, and it's always about all right. So maybe you're still worried, and I have not properly quelled your fears. Maybe your fears are actually reasonable, but then still the question is not just So is so how can we address your fears in the cheapest and most humane way possible, rather than just using complaints as a rationalization for what we already do? Right. So, look, if your worry is about Muslim immigration, then say, all right, then everybody else can come. Right, so we're only worried about them, and then if your fear is, well, we're worried about them voting. All right, fine. How, they, how about they can they can come, they can work, they can live, but they can't. But they're not allowed to vote, or if, you're worried, worries, if your fear is about crimes, like, well, look, males commit almost all violent crimes, so you should still let the women in, right, and so on. I mean, which is just a very different out, uh, way of looking at the situation that almost everyone has, because say almost everyone else is looking for a way to rationalize what exists. And I'm trying to you know, trying to say, look, open borders should be our presumption, our starting point. And then if we, then if we're going to go and bend that, we should bend it for very specific, narrowly tailored reasons based upon hard evidence rather than just paranoid speculation. Again, in the case of Israel, I will say that we have multiple very good examples of immigrate of very of very high levels of immigration in the region, to the point where it became a large percentage of the population, leading to civil war. So that's the difference. So yes, so Palestinian immigration in both Jordan and Lebanon did actually see very clearly to, to subsequently precipitate civil war or near civil war. Um, I would just say that that is such an unusual case because there you have not only are the immigrants a very large percentage of the, of the receiving population, they're also almost all from the same group, and it's a group that had an agenda that was very dangerous. Uh, I, I would note on the other hand, I would have no problem at all with letting all Palestinians into the United States because they would be such a small percentage of the population that they would have no prospect of ever gaining power. And then I think actually we would assimilate them and like all of this poison that's been going on since 1948 would just evaporate in a couple of generations and that would be the end of it. Just like Serbs and Croats don't kill each other here either. It's like, no, the Croats aren't getting control of the U.S. government. Serbs aren't getting control of it. There's no point trying to do anything anymore. You just have to go and enjoy living in a free country. Free-ish. (laughs) <laughs> so, what's an
2: example of the uh, best examples that we have currently of countries that deal with immigration in a very, uh, uh, prog- very, very like, uh, um, effective way?
1: Yeah. So, here I'm going to say something that will shock a lot of people, but it's true. So, I'm just going to say it. the Gulf monarchies are the best countries in the world for immigration. Why? Because they let in a lot of people and they let in low skilled workers too. So Kuwait is about 85% foreign-born. They let in people to be janitors. They let in people to go and, let's see, if they have agriculture. I'm not sure if they have agriculture in Kuwait. They let in people to go and be nannies. So and these are jobs that it's very hard for anyone to get in in richer countries to do these jobs. Uh, Now, a lot of people don't like it Says, well. They're not allowed to become citizens. True. They don't get to vote. True. They get treated like second-class citizens. Also true. Uh, Then what's so great about it? They let them in. They let them in, and being able to move from Pakistan to Kuwait to work for 10 years is life-changing. It allows you to go home as the richest man in the village when you're done, right? And the idea that people don't know that when they show up in Kuwait that they're going to have to endure this mistreatment, is crazy. You know, they, like, they talk to friends and relatives. They got cell phones. They know what's awaiting them. It's just so much better than what the they've got. And if you say that it's unfair the way Kuwait treats them, I'll say, yeah, it's unfair. It's just less unfair than the way we treat them, which is to say no, you know, the deal of, no, you can't come here is much more unfair and much worse than you can come here, but you're going to be treated like, you're going to be treated like a second class citizen and you have a bunch of, there's a bunch of other problems and you can't go to the malls, right? So I would the Gulf monarchies are the best hands down because they let in so many people and they're not picky. They let in people to do low-skilled jobs, so which, again, as I say, is, is where most of the economic gain is, is letting in low-skilled workers. Why? Because most human beings on earth are very low-skilled by first world standards, but they're still very useful. Their skills are useful. Janitors are useful people, right? If the janitor at your firm dies, you don't celebrate and say, oh, the parasite is dead. Instead, you say, oh, well, first of all, very sad, but second of all, we need someone else to do that important and vital job so that, it, so that other people don't have to do that job. So, would I mean, anyway, I say the Gulf monarchies are the best, and then probably followed by Singapore, which is not quite we, we, again, which not in the same ballpark in terms of how many immigrants they let in to share a population, but still, Singapore has a, is much more open, and they let in low skilled workers, so that's also also very good. So, yeah, I would say th- those are the best, and then goes down from there. Would, would you say that?
2: So, I guess push back in the sense of, in the U.S., we have laws that says low skilled workers cannot come in. It's mm-hmm. very hard mm-hmm. as a low-skilled yeah, yeah, worker sure. to come in. However, how many of them come in every year? Ah, mm-hmm.
1: uh, so let's see. Let's assume it's yeah, a yeah, very, yeah, yes, let, let, yeah. let
2: me put my, 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 my anti-immigration yeah, hat yeah, like, yeah. a, yeah. like yeah. a large amount. And the border, they come in in large amounts, and we live in Texas here, mm-hmm. and there's lots and lots mm-hmm. and lots of low-skilled workers that yep. come, come to the state. And yet, they're not treated as second-class citizens. Mm-hmm. Now, my statement mm-hmm. is, 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 is mm-hmm. clearly they cannot vote and so on, but they're not segregated the same mm-hmm. the same degree that the, the Gulf markets they are. Um, so it, 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 I mean, it's 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 uh, and again I think you have yeah. interacted mm-hmm. with, yeah. with, with migrants here through the yeah. last month quite yeah. a lot right mm-hmm. and and it, we, we, you know we, we don't stop them from mm-hmm. we, I, what I'm trying to say is that is that. The reality on the ground seems way less problematic than mm-hmm. what our laws are actually mm-hmm. meant to be. It's better to yeah. be an undocumented undoc- immigrant, immigrant here
3: than a documented uh, low skilled immigrant in. That's Dubai. what I was I'm, so I'm, I'm potentially I, 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 proposing yeah, yeah.
1: here. I actually doubt that. So, like in Dubai, you aren't afraid of getting deported. You aren't you know, like like you can go and get a, you, know, you can go and have a bank account. I you know, yeah, think yeah. Sure, yeah, probability yeah,
2: probability probability so, of, of one of the illegal immigrants so getting so deported is very uh, low. Now,
1: now, by the way, on the second class citizenship. So I don't know if you've been to Laredo, Texas, but I have. And there, they actually are behind the internal the internal border enforcement wall. So basically, if you are Hispanic looking, even and you draw and you draw, you know, like in Laredo, you're okay. But if you drive a little bit further into Texas, then you can get stopped. And I did talk to people who personally have been pulled over about like, like and profiled. I've been you, pulled over yeah, multiple you, you times there. Simpsons, I've yes. been pulled over multiple times. Okay, so yeah. so so that you know, and again, imagine, of course, if you are in fact a uh, you know, undocumented, then like that's again, I'm not suggesting yeah. it's great. I'm Be just Saying that, uh, yes. given the fact yeah, that we it, have a
2: country that yeah. assimilates people from other yes. cultures in ways that not necessarily like the, the Gulf, yeah. Gulf states. So,
1: so I mean, I, I would say that actually, so like you know, undocumented workers in the U.S., especially if you visibly don't look uh, don't look like a native born American, I think there's actually a lot of places that you would be afraid to go and don't go in terms of the probability. So, yeah, I was just talking. Who was I talking to about this? Anyway, the person was saying, well, basically, there's only like a, if you are illegally here, there's only about a 10 percent risk of. No, wait, I think it was. A, He was saying it was actually, there's only like a 30% risk of getting deported per year, or no, excuse excuse me, per decade. And I was like, 30% per decade, that's like three, no, no, he said 3% per year. And I said, 3% per year, that's like 30% per decade, that's terrifying. So it's not actually that low if you realize that you're planning on being here for quite a while. I mean, like any any one day, it probably won't happen. But if you know there's a 30% chance that you'd be sent back to a country you haven't lived in for a long time, um, like, like over the course of a decade, that's pretty bad, actually. Uh, but anyway, you know, so you know, my, my point was, is like, even, if we do, even if we do clearly treat the, the people here that come here much better, the thing about Kuwait is they let a lot more in. So the, the, the right thought experiment is, suppose you could either have like a 1% chance of getting in and get treated the way that U.S. treats immigrants, or you could have a 50% chance of getting in and get treated the way that Kuwait treats immigrants, and suppose you're in a really desperate, messed up country like Pakistan, then I think, the Kuwait, the, the Kuwait from, from your point of view, Kuwait is way better. Way better.
2: All right, and, and I guess you also, you also, I think the delta in alternatives there is much larger, right, yeah, yeah. than it is yes. here.
3: Right? Yeah. So I, th- I suspect there are people who will watch this who will think, here we are, these kind of elitist academics talking mm-hmm. about this kind of thing. It's all good for us in our gated neighborhoods. But um, it's bedlam down at the border. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are streaming over, the governor is there heroically with a, mor- with a, a trowel trying to build up the wall by himself because the federal government's not doing it. Uh, what's going on here? I mean, there's a crisis. Mm-hmm. Isn't there a crisis at the border? Is it, is it true that there is? And if there mm-hmm. is, why? And if not, why do mm-hmm. we think there is?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, a running theme, and by the way, this is not just me and immigration, this is me and everything. There's a great disconnect between what you see on TV and the media and what is actually important. I don't accuse the media of actually showing things that are not happening. Rather, they are going and finding the most emotionally inflammatory things and trying to make sure everyone goes and sees them, even if they are not statistically very important. So you go to the border and you say, hey, this is a total disaster. It's so like you go and find the place where it is most striking, mo- most frightening, most horrifying, instead of saying, let's go and randomly sample a bunch of areas of the U.S. that have a lot of immigrants and walk around and see what happens, which, as I say, is the correct way to go and find out whether there's really a crisis or not. In terms of what's going on at the border, say, look, obviously, if people could just come in the same way that, uh, that any other legal visitor does, it, would, might, it might be a long line. It would just be like a long line of customs. It wouldn't look like anything frightening for people. So I would say the reason why there's something frightening going on is, of course, that it is illegal. And when you make something illegal, then people will often take desperate efforts to get over the law. So, like we're familiar with prohibition of alcohol and that kind of thing, or prohibition of drugs now. So again, like you know, the problem is not the primarily the thing itself. It's when you make it illegal, then there will be chaos and frightening things that are associated with it. But I say it's pretty easy to get rid of that just by regularizing the process in a way where almost anyone can do it safely, legally, above board. Uh, so, but yeah, like, like, but does everyone ever say, but yeah, like, but for now, it's a disaster. No, it's not a disaster. Rather, the media goes and shows the tiniest part of the reality that looks disastrous when you put it in front of a camera, and they don't do proper, proper random sampling to say, well, like, what does it look like in general when there's immigrants, and then it looks like America because almost everywhere has lots of immigrants in America now. If you just go around New York City, like, what does it look like when forty percent of a major U.S. city is foreign born? It just looks like <laughs> New York City. Like, it's, that's what it looks like. It's, like, like, like. it's not scary, not really scary at all. Like, I mean, maybe you only don't like crowds or you have, fear of, you have fear of crowds or tall buildings or something. But other than that, you know, that is a much more representative vision of what a high immigrant area looks like than going down to the wall in Texas.
3: I did a kind of experiment a few years ago um, when I was seeing a lot of my Facebook friends or Facebook acquaintances, whatever mm-hmm. you call them. Um, <laughs> uh, very concerned about immigration, I I just wrote a post that said, a lot of you guys are really concerned about immigration to the country. It seems like you think it's the number one, number two, certainly the top Mm -hmm. ten problems Mm -hmm. we have. I don't remember this being how you guys talked 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe you always thought that and didn't, but if if you came to see this as a major problem where you Mm -hmm. don't now, could you just, not an argument, just Mm -hmm. tell me that, narrate, you know, like what? What yeah, occurred yeah. that shifted? You're thinking, what did you notice that I haven't noticed yet? What What was it? And almost everybody mentioned 9-11. Yeah, yeah. And I thought...
1: But that—I mean, they were tourists. Right? Yeah, I was on tourist and student visas. Was there zero or one of them was on an immigrant visa. I can't remember.
3: Yeah, and it's not—I yeah. mean, that yeah. might be a particular yeah. reason to yeah. tailor from a particular place. Or yeah. it's not like gardeners mm-hmm. and uh, nannies uh, and construction workers and all the people coming for economic reasons from that. But it was striking to me how many people said mm-hmm. that, and how many people just quickly made that jump to it's a, a crisis. We're being invaded. There's a, the culture is going to mm-hmm. shift, and. Didn't see the need to argue for the steps, like mm-hmm. not argue to narrate the steps, right? <laughs> yeah, to yeah. so say like I first noticed it with uh, with Muslims, and then I started to worry mm-hmm. about this other thing. It was as though it were kind of self evident. Didn't you? Mm-hmm. Didn't you see mm-hmm. the buildings come down? And maybe this is your comment about the
1: xenophobia people feel. Yeah, yeah I mean that, or, like, or just more general. Generally, so like, like, what do you get from the news? You get hysteria and hurting hysteria and hurting so you show things that are extremely upsetting like like, I understand why 9-11 is very upsetting my wife works; was working there just a couple years before so you see that and the normal human reaction is oh my god this is the end of the world and then it takes a lot of intellectual effort to say it's very vivid. It's very striking, but it's not the end of the world. It's one per, less than one percent of all murders over the last twenty years, and murders itself less than one percent of all deaths. So it's like less than one ten thousandth of all deaths. It's worth doing something about it, but it's not worth going and changing our society in any deep way to deal with things like this. But I mean, like to get a person to do to do those steps, that's really hard. That's asking from people you know, like you know, like you know, just to like, well, just. Things that really bother you, stop having the bother you and calm down, right? You know, like the, of course the classic way to not get people to calm down is to say calm down, but <laughs> right? So. I mean, you know, so, so yeah so I think so there's that and then you know the xenophobia as well but again of course xenophobia I would say is just a constant human trait but it does mean that you are sensitive to certain kinds of things so you have a pre-existing xenophobia and then something happens uh, which then goes and activates the xenophobia at a higher level so I think that's that's a lot of what's going on and again then you know, like so much of the way people look at policy it's not to go and say here's a problem what would be the best policy designed to deal with this problem instead it's there's a policy Policy I want what problems justify it and so like if like in your gut your reaction is we got to get to we, like immigrant immigration has to be stopped then you saw 9/11 that justifies it because if we didn't let in foreigners that wouldn't have happened and it's like yeah but isn't there a, a narrower thing that could have been done that would have all the all that would solve all the problems you're worried about without going and causing immense harm to a bunch of other people who have nothing to do with it? And again, but you're already going and trying to get upon someone who's very emotional to not be emotional, which is really tough. I mean, personally, I, I always try to lead by example, right? And I never accuse anyone. I'm well, like almost basically. If it's the point where I have to accuse a person I'm talking to of being emotional, I kind of feel like I, like there's like I've already lost. I've already lost the argument, and I can persuade the person. Always better to say there's some other people, obviously present company excluded, who are emotional, and let's think about what's wrong with them. And I'm sure you can see this with with students. It's always easy to say, well, look, obviously there's the great intellectual tradition of economics. and There's people like your parents who are probably very economically literate. And then, which of these two culture subcultures do you want to affiliate with? With the great tradition of economic reasoning, or with your parents, right? And, and you know, never suggesting that, that you know, like, like, I don't, don't want to say like you'll reject your parents' economic literacy, but just saying, look, there's there's a choice here, and like whatever one you want to do. And, uh, yeah, it's sounding like <laughs> you're one of these academic people are afraid of. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like, my goal is to. Yeah, I mean, perhaps their goal too is to send them home at thanksgiving and change their parents mind but but you know like I, leading by example never can you don't want to condemn anyone don't want to make anyone feel bad just want to want to be sunshine and light and uh, so and like, like you win people win people over make friends and have them make more friends that's the approach that i believe in that's what i try to do in open borders so many people have read it and say Look, this is one of the few books where you don't seem to be angry at anybody really you're not condemning anybody like yeah i want to change people's minds you don't change people's minds by saying first of all you're you're terrible second of all Although,
2: um, <laughs> well, the word xenophobia is a big one that i think carries a lot of negative emotions to people
1: too so i don't know if it's in the book yeah. is it in the book hmm? i that word I, you know, at least, if it is it's v- almost like maybe yeah, maybe not. a couple label a couple uses so i don't like so the re- it might be in the references actually um, but oh yeah like so the like, there, 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 there is perhaps it's in the subtext, definitely, but but again, like you know, subtext is almost impossible to, to control. But you know, just, just to be friendly to people, and you know, like treat people as if you're assuming, as, as if things, you know, like good things are possible. You know, it's just it's it's wise even when it is not accurate.
2: So we're running out of time here, I want to ask one more question that I think has to do with your current book, which you are mm-hmm. writing on. You mentioned that you were uh, a book on, on building, mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. do away with all housing regulations. Mm-hmm. It's almost like as open board and as, yeah, as, you know, as it comes, right? Like, no, 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 no code. Zero mm-hmm. code, let people mm-hmm. build whatever they want, whatever they want, mm-hmm. right? As long as they're private property. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair assessment of the. Maybe you're not mm-hmm. going as far as that.
1: Well, so I'm not, not going to go that far. Well, let me Yes, yes, yes. So, yeah, <laughs> yes yeah, like definitely, the whole book is about housing deregulation and how the regulation is not just foolish, but extremely destructive. And then on the question of why not just keep a few last ones, this is one where I think the slippery slope argument is very strong. Because if you, if once you see the history of housing regulation, it just started with a few little rules and it's just saying, yeah, well, you know, like, like, you know, just you just have to have you, know, you, you can't you can't go and put industry into this town. Like what's the big deal? The industry can be one town over. But it really like, housing regulation really was something where it started very small and now has become extreme, really strangling, crushing. And like I don't think these, these are hyperbolic terms. If you look at places like the Bay Area, where you could fight for twenty years to go and like put a duplex onto a house that currently has one house, crazy stuff like that. So,
2: so then my question is, both of those things in some ways are people f- fear change, whatever you want, how you mm-hmm. want to describe mm-hmm. that people. Yeah. One, like whatever they have around them and they somehow mm-hmm. think it's optimal mm-hmm. uh, very similar mm-hmm. to the environmentalist movement no no yeah, no no yeah. Well, somehow what we have now is optimal like yeah. it's not it just happens to be and,
1: and that would and, be the and, most optimistic environmentalist I ever heard okay, of okay fine <laughs> <laughs> <That> <laughs> yeah. things are optimal the way they are I show me these no, environmentalists no, 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 optimist, the way circa they were before we started yeah, yeah, 1820s maybe is yeah, yeah, when yeah, they yeah, were optimal 1820 1820 1820 BC that's
2: right that's right so but but still it's an enormous fear of change oh I don't want my my neighborhood change completely. Oh, I don't see mm-hmm. the culture of my town or my country change mm-hmm. completely. Um, and of those, which you were more hopeful for, hmm. actually, because both of them yeah. leave a lot of money on the table. Immigration oh, leaves yeah. a lot of money on the table. Mm-hmm. Housing regulation, he leaves an enormous amount of money on the table. Um, so yes, what so. you want more I'm actually,
1: oh. I'm more hopeful on immigration because there's wow. been an enormous change in public opinion on immigration over the last 20 years. So we have a public opinion on immigration going back to the 1960s, I believe, and basically support for more immigration was under 10% of the U.S. population continuously for every known survey from the 60s up till about the year 2000. So it was an extreme minority position with less than one American in 10 believing there should even be more. Not, that's not open borders. That's just more than we got. And then between 2000 and today, it's gone up to about 30%, so gaining about one percentage point per year. Uh, so now again, maybe it won't continue, but you know these things do seem to have some momentum. So I think it's quite plausible it'll, it'll be up to forty percent in ten or fifteen years. And then, while I have a lot of skepticism about how functional democracy is, still, when a view becomes uh, uh, that popular, then I think it is normal actually to see change in the direction of the more popular view. So work for gay marriage, work for marijuana legalization. And actually, if you just go and look at public opinion on those three issues, immigration looks so much like those other two. It's like marijuana legalization and gay marriage. Those were not rising continuously from the 60s. They were flat, flat and low support for many decades. And suddenly it started rising. And immigration is, is uh, some years behind. It is a much bigger change. I'll be happy to admit that. But nevertheless, I, I'm, I'm more optimistic about that. For deregulating housing, uh, like I don't know of any good data on public opinion, but I'd be quite shocked if 30% of people would say, yeah, should we let people build? make it easier to build houses?
2: All right. Yeah. Are we done? I think we're done. Yeah.
1: Let's- thrilling fun fantastic
3: <laughs> thank, thanks, thanks, Brian. Brian, thank, thanks, thank you guys steve. thanks yeah. greg
1: yep and thank yeah. yep. you so much yeah all and right my, my pleasure thank you carlos steve and greg Fantastic. Nice you you all fantastic,
2: next time yeah. in our next free lunch episode